from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Friends, our first scripture reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verses 41 through 48. The text will be on the screens if you want to read along with me. Listen now for a word from God. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for those who taunt me, for I trust in your word. Do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your ordinances. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I shall walk at liberty, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your decrees before kings and shall not be put to shame. I find my delight in your commandments because I love them. I revere your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Our second text is from the Gospel of John, the eighth chapter, verses 31 through 38. Powerful words. Um, I'd encourage you to continue to open your heart to hear a word from God. Then Jesus said to the Jewish people who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household, but the son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're a descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me because there is no place in you for my word. I declare what I have seen in the father's presence. As for you, you should do what you have heard from the father. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this word afresh to us this day so that we would be changed, seriously changed in a small way or a great way that we will look back at our time of worship today and say, I'm glad I was a part of things because God showed up and spoke directly into my life. Would you do that? Oh Lord, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we started a, a sermon series in the very first week of uh, January that has us exploring and considering six theological uh, principles uh, that grounded the faith and the ministry of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, we talked about love. Uh, we talked about conscience. We talked about justice. And today we're going to talk about freedom. We're going to talk about the theological principle of freedom. And I want to begin by taking you uh, to Boston, Massachusetts, that historic 
urban center where many of freedom movements were born. Now, I don't want to take you back to 1630 when the Puritans arrived uh, in North America to escape religious persecution, nor do I want to take you back to 1773 and the Boston Tea Party, nor will I take you back to 2004 when the Boston Red Sox freed themselves from the so-called curse of the Bambino and won their first World Series since trading Hall of Famer Babe Ruth to their nemesis, the New York Yankees, in 1918. I actually want to take you back to Boston, 1951. Boston, 1951, where the germination of another freedom movement continued to take theological and philosophical shape in that great city. For it was that year that the Martin Luther, that Martin Luther King Jr., a 22-year-old, began his doctoral studies at Boston University. The young Martin had two academic advisors, two mentors for him during that time, Edgar Brightman and L. Harold DeWolf. And we don't have time to go into their careers or share much about them, uh, but there is one important thing that you need to know, and it's the reason why King went to Boston U in the first place, is that these two were staunch philosophical advocates of uh, this philosophy called personalism personalism. And personalism was something that Martin was interested in, in his master's years at Crozier, that seminary just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, Also in his undergraduate years here in Atlanta at Morehouse College, he wanted to study with these two men uh, because they were the two of two amongst two of the, the great minds around this philosophy of uh, personalism. Now, personalism has a few principal convictions. The first one, and this is the most important, is that personalism asserts that the human being is a someone, not a something. That the human being is a someone, not a something. The human being is a subject, not an object. Human being is a subject, not an object. In that way, personalists are our staunch adversaries of both Marxist ideologies and unbridled capitalism that wants to reduce the human being to, in the case of Marxism, an object made for the state, and in the case of unbridled capitalism, an object made for the market. The personalists would contend that both the state and the market were made to serve human beings and not the other way around. The, the, the state and the market were created to serve human beings, not the other way around. We are someone, not some thing. Personalists are also fierce advocates of the dignity of every individual. And you see this and hear this time and time and time again in Dr. King's sermons and lectures and speeches. Every person, he would argue, even the worst of us, has inherent dignity has inherent dignity. King once said that every human being is an heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. In his view, dignity is not contingent on external factors, but is contingent principally on an intrinsic truth, a quality of being human, something that each and every one of us possesses. 
Personalism also emphasizes the interconnectedness of individuals and the idea that we should be ethical, not just for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of the whole. That's why King would often say, and I know you know this quote, some of you know it by heart, but that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly that we're tied together. Personalists say we were, we're tied together. Finally, personalism values the freedom and autonomy of individuals while also recognizing our responsibility to steward our freedom well, to steward our freedom well and to advocate for the freedom of others. So I'm saying all this because sometimes we forget that Martin was an academic, that Dr. King was an academic that he had advanced degrees. And in building the structure of the civil rights movement, one of the things I think is important to, to, to understand is that personalism played a huge role. This philosophy played a huge role, along with his own personal experiences uh, with God, along with all that he learned at the Ebenezer Church just a few miles down the road, and all that he learned about Jesus at the King dining room table just around the corner. He, he also was obviously ever mindful of segregation in the South, even as he was mindful of America's founding documents and the ways in which those documents guaranteed freedom, liberty, and justice for all. All of that, including this idea of personalism, created the framework for King's civil rights movement. And of course, freedom would be one of the major themes of that movement. So what I'd like to do um, for the remainder of the sermon is actually offer um, some reflections on the theological principle of freedom. Uh, and these reflections, I, I wanted to do what I did just a moment ago by giving you this background, that what I'm about to share is deeply connected to my own study of King, uh, both at Princeton and throughout uh, the years as a pastor, um, that, that these reflect my own sort of um, submission to the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and of course, shaped by my own experiences around what people have said about freedom and what I have come to believe uh, is important about freedom. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to offer a reflection on three senses of freedom, three senses of freedom that I believe are essential for anyone who wants to mature in the Christian faith. There are three essential notions of freedom that I think are essential for anyone who wants to mature or who is maturing in the Christian faith and the Christian life. First, I want to speak about freedom in an interpersonal sense. And then I want to speak about freedom in an ethical sense. And finally, I want to close with a reflection on freedom in a redemptive sense. Interpersonal, ethical, and redemptive. So first, the interpersonal sense. It is true that you and I are free to embrace our personal dignity and value. It is also true that you and I are free to embrace the personal dignity and value in other people. It's also true that we can neglect to use that freedom to choose that way. 
And that's why I want to call this the interpersonal sense of freedom. Genesis tells us that, that we are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And that declaration, and this is just sort of the math of it, that declaration happens 27 verses into the first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's an accident. It's always been striking to me that the first thing that we learn about the human being is that we're made in the creator's image. That's the very first thing. Just think about this. Before we learn that we are disobedient through the Adam and Eve story, before we learn that we have a proclivity towards bitterness and resentment and violence and murder in the Cain and Abel story, and before we learn that the human heart is tainted with sin in that story of Noah when he built that great ark in the story of the, the great flood, before all of that, before all of it, we learn ourselves to be made in the image of God. That's the primal word. That's the first word. And again, that's not an accident. It's not an editorial accident that that line precedes the rest of those stories. For that first truth about you and me is this, that we're made in the image of God. And friends, I just want you to take a moment and let that sink in. Let that, that, let that work on your body and your mind and your soul. Let that truth mute every self-hating word that's rattling around in your brain even now. Let it erase every line of self-contempt that's written on the ledger of your heart. Let it send to hell every instance of self-rejection, self-sabotage, and self-loathing. Let that annihilate every impulse to want to choose toxic people in your life because you don't believe you deserve to be authentically loved. The first word about you and me is the most important one that we're made in the image of God and we are free to either embrace that or reject it. If one embraces it, if one truly lets it wash over them, if one allows that first word to order their existence in the created order, then one can't help but to see the other as possessing that same dignity and value. They are mutually connected. For when I freely embrace my own personal dignity, I'm then free to embrace the dignity of others. And it works in reverse. When I'm having a hard time seeing my own dignity and my value and my worth, I can turn to my neighbor and see the dignity and value and worth in them. And I begin to see my connectedness to them. And I begin to discover what it might mean to choose in freedom, my own dignity and value. These are deeply connected to one another. This is freedom in an interpersonal sense to exercise one's freedom, to embrace the dignity and value inherent in you and inherent in your neighbor. Second, you and I are most free when we are bound to God. You and I are most free when we're bound to God as servants of God's righteousness in the world. And this is the ethical sense of freedom. When Jesus said in John 8, 
If the son has set you free, you are free indeed. We have to know that he was speaking about what I would call a double move. The first move is freedom from something. He talks about a freedom from sin. Sin is that which impedes or runs contrary or counter to the great commandments, to love God, to love ourselves and to love our neighbor. When you give your life to Christ, when you surrender yourself to his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, when you invite him to take up residence in your heart, you are no longer a slave to sin. That doesn't mean you stop sinning, but it means you're no longer a slave to sin. You're free. It no longer has power over you. You're free from the love of sinning. You're free from the consequences of sinning. You're free from the power of shame and alienation and loneliness that that often uh, has over us. Now, I, I call this the ethical sense because it's not just that we're free from something, but we're free for something. We're free to something. We're free to be bound to God. We're free to be a servant of God. In Psalm 119, the, the text that Chris read for us, the psalmist says that they walk with liberty. They walk with freedom as they pursue God, God's word and God's statutes and precepts. When we're bound to God, we are the most free we can be. When we're bound to God, we are the most free we can be. When we're bound to God, we're also bound to God's word and it's God's word which expresses God's righteousness in and for the world and righteousness is just a word that simply means correct moral and ethical action in the way of God. Paul put it like this in Romans 6, we've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to righteousness. We've become enslaved to the morality and ethics of Christ. The great 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said it like this, that freedom is not the absence of responsibilities. It's the ability to choose and act responsibly. We use our freedom then. We use our freedom to choose our place as moral and ethical actors in this world. As moral and ethical actors in this world, bearing witness to the righteousness of God. We use our freedom to choose that way. Third and finally, and I'm, and I'm going to close with this. You and I are free to embrace a very hard truth. And that is that in many ways, we're not really that free. And in many ways, we're really not free. But we still, even in that limitation, we still can exercise what freedom we do have to co-create with God and with the community of faith, a future that's distinct from the past. Uh, neuroscientists have done studies of, of people, of their brains, when somebody tells them that they are not free, it goes all haywire and lights up and flashes in, in different places because we don't like that because it seems that we're free in every way, right? But, but, but even um, in the mundane uh, you know you're not free. Like, for example, you weren't free to not hear me say what I just said, right? Like, you weren't free. Um, you're not free 
to dispossess the biology and the DNA and the chemical and neurological construct that makes you, you. You're not free to dispossess that. You're not free to dispossess the environment in which you were raised. And the people who were in that environment, people who gave you good gifts and people who took things from you. You and I are not totally free. And maybe just to put a period on the end of this argument, that we are not free from the inevitability of our own demise. Do you need to say more? That you and I are not free, to put it another way, to choose not to die. We're just not free. As I said, it's a hard truth, but the fact of the matter is, is that we are not as free as we think. My father um, was born in abject poverty in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. I've talked about him before. Today, Kensington, that neighborhood is dubbed the meth capital of the world. But even back in the 40s and 50s, it was a tough place to grow up. My father was one of 10 children born to Norman and Heather Sundermeyer. And what you need to know about my grandfather is that he was a tyrant. Uh, he was a tyrant. He was an adulterer. It was often the case that he would leave for the weekend after a week of work and go be with one of his mistresses. And then he would come back. He would try to get into the house. And my grandmother would come to the door with a pan and she would chase him literally up and down the block. The neighbors would laugh. The children would cry. My grandfather was also uh, physically and emotionally abusive. And that abuse was principally directed at the fourth child. Psychologists in the room will have a field day with this. The fourth child, the one who carried his name, Norman, my father. When my dad was six or seven years old, he was sharing a bed with two other of his siblings. Uh, and one night, as children sometimes do, he wet the bed. Everybody woke up early in the morning because of the soiled sheets. And my grandfather came in, enraged, and he beat my father, and he locked him uh, in a different room in the house, like almost like a little closet, but still had a window in that tiny row home looking out to the back. And he locked him in that room for the whole summer as a punishment for soiling the bed. One story, family lore, was that during that summer when they were cooking out in the backyard, his brothers rigged a, a string from the window down and they tied very gently a hot dog and hamburger bun and he was able to pull it up. It was an act of mercy and grace by his siblings in a home that was mostly void of it. Here's the thing. As my father came of age and entered adulthood, he was not free he was not free from the trauma he experienced as a child. He was not free from sharing the same DNA with a tyrant father who possessed a paltry capacity for empathy. He was not free from growing up in an environment that wasn't safe and that didn't have his best interests in mind. He was not free from the pain or the abuse or the scars, the self-doubt or the heartache of his childhood. And the truth is, neither are we. None of us is free from the good, the bad, 
and the ugly of our past. And friends, we have to admit that if we have any shot at redemption. You have to admit that if you have any shot at redemption. What is more redemption, I think, is realized when those patterns of abuse or harm or low empathy or whatever it is for you stop with us. When they end in our generation and they die with the previous one. You know, Jesus' ministry, um, his first call to the people was a call to repentance. The Greek word is metanoia. And it literally means, it literally means to turn around. Metanoia means to turn around. And, and one of the profound gifts, I think, of Christ's grace is that he frees us and empowers us to turn around, to tell a different story, to go a different way, to make different choices. So exercise your freedom. Exercise your freedom to turn a different way. In my father's case, he chose fidelity and faithfulness to my mother for the 21 years they were married. He chose to be a loving and caring father who still disciplined us, but did it in a way that a kind and loving father should. He chose to cultivate a spiritual life, a real authentic relationship with God. He chose to die with dignity and bravery and courage and faith when cancer ravaged his body. And most importantly, most importantly, he gave my brother and me a gift. He leveraged what freedom he did have to create by God's grace, a future distinct from the past in his choice to travel a different direction away from the tyranny of his father and the trauma he caused. My father became a different person, a different man. And by Christ's grace, he turned toward a more excellent way. And the world would never be the same. So to all of you who know you're not free from the trauma, the disappointment, the shame, the regret, the past, to all of you who know that you're not free from the root cause of your sleepless nights or your loneliness or your ambivalence or your fear, to all of you who know that you're not free from the legacies and experiences that have been left to you, know that you do have some modicum of freedom by God's grace. And with the support of the community, you have the freedom to create a future distinct from the past. May we exercise our freedom to embrace our dignity and worth and embrace the dignity and worth in others. May we use our freedom to be bonded to God and God's righteousness as ethical and moral actors in the world. And may we use our freedom to choose a more excellent way that by God's grace, we can in fact create a future distinct from the past. I'm praying that this is true in my life and in your life. I'm praying that it's true for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world. Amen.